Welcome to Desire Made Real, a Discovery of Witches podcast where we recap every episode of the television show spoiler-free. I'm one of your hosts, Manny Kay, and when I'm not talking about Matthew and Diana, I'm talking about movies on my other podcast, Pop Culturally Deprived. And I'm Caitlin, and when I'm not talking about Discovery Witches, I'm podcasting about Lord of the Rings on So You Want to Read Tolkien. Each week, we'll recap the episode spoiler-free, and we'll also be joined by our friend, Dr. Anya, an evolutionary biologist, who will talk about the science of the show. We'll also include a segment at the end to discuss the books, how well the adaptation works, and we will likely dive into some spoilers here, but don't worry, we'll give you plenty of warning before we get there. Episode 8 was directed by Sarah Walker and written by Kate Brooke. And quick trivia, Kate Brooke has written more than half of this series. That is awesome. All right, well, this is the season one finale, and it is also the one where everyone makes friends, even Gerbert and Knox. So let's dive into this. We pick up right where we left off with Juliet having grabbed Diana. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> she does. She grabs Diana, and it's very threatening, and Matthew zooms over. Right. And everybody loves a good vampire zoom. Every time <laughs> you say zoom, I think of my dog having the zoomies. <laughs> I think that describes Matthew. <laughs> We're well here. Okay. I'll take um, it. I mean, there's all those, like, wolf comparisons, so. That's true. That's true. All right. Julia continues to be very, very dramatic in this scene. Like, every time we see her, she's she's kind of dramatic just in the way she carries herself and, you know, screaming at Gerbert, you created me to crave him. And then here you get, you abandoned me. And it's just almost laugh-worthy how overly dramatic it is. I would agree, except I think, like, the actress is really good. Mm -hmm. So I think she kind of nails it. I think that's true of a lot of this show, though, that, like, sometimes the lines are a little overly dramatic, but because everyone's taking it seriously it somehow kind of works but i do get what you're saying i feel like this was done this was delivered just a little bit too over the top like it needed to come back like half a percent and it would have worked because she keeps talking right after that um where we actually get some story about juliet and and how she spent time with Matthew previously and all of that was fine, but it didn't quite match the tone of this one line. And so it just really stood out to me as being very, very dramatic. Yeah. And then Juliet is determined to see why Matthew didn't choose her. And so she threatens Diana and forces Matthew to kiss her. And I'm going to mention a little bit from the book here because they cut out in the book that Juliet kisses Diana first. And I think that that was just an opportunity missed. (laughs) Wow, I completely forgot that happened. Yeah. (laughs) It may have actually saved the scene because it was super awkward. I hate that he actually did it. I really wish he hadn't done it. And I found myself very frustrated with the whole thing. Although I did think his constant reassurance to Diana was very sweet. I mean, he was looking at Diana as if Juliet wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. And and that was very sweet. But oh, the kiss just... It was just... It was too much. It was creepy that Juliet wanted them to do it. 
And it was just weird that there was absolutely no hesitation on Matthew's part. There was no, what's the word? There was no argument. There was like nothing. It was just, okay, she told me to do this thing, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. And it wasn't just like a a peck on the lips, you know? Mm -hmm. They both went in on that kiss. Like, really, guys? Yeah, that was not the time for that kind of kiss. Then Juliet kind of shoves Dan away, takes out a piece of Matthew's neck, and then, you know, puts her hand inside of him and grabs out a piece of his insides. Yeah, they're now on the outside. Yeah, that was pleasant. It also felt like it came out of nowhere. I mean, maybe it didn't because we've seen her infatuation with him this whole time. And now she's actually seeing him with this other woman. And so maybe it's a case of if I can't have you, nobody can. And that's why she decides to kill him. But it just felt very rushed to get to that point. I guess there's a bit more talking in the book before this happens, but none of it was really necessary. Other than you learn a bit about like what they did together. Mm -hmm. That sounds creepy. (laughs) I meant like what timeline they were together and that they traveled around a bit and went to different places. Yeah. And something to do with Marcus, which I'm not getting into because of spoilers. Uh, But other than that, it's, I don't know, whatever. She attacks him. They have a lot to get through in this episode, so that is I can understand why they rushed it. Right. But uh, then Diana crouches over a fallen, injured Matthew, and Juliet says, your magic can't save him. And almost immediately, like, Diana gives her these death eyes. Oh, yeah. Fierce Diana is absolutely fierce in that moment. Yeah. That's the first time that we've seen her intentionally use her magic offensively. Mm-hmm. It's it's all actually I think it's the first time we've seen her use it offensively. It's always been defensive in the past. Yes. Yeah. 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 I can agree with that. And uh, when she puts her mind to it, man, she really puts her mind to it. Yeah. And the way that she like flings her hands out in the fire is really good. It is really good. I think this may be my favorite special effect of the entire season. I also really enjoyed it, and I love how, like, the bad special effects almost highlight when the special effects are really good. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they were just saving them all up for this one really good thing, and it, it was a really great moment. Yeah, it was good. I do think, like, in the book, Juliet just sort of appears out of nowhere for this scene, since we never get anything other than Diana's point of view. Mm-hmm. And then she dies. And that's fine in the book, because you're like, oh, okay. But here, I feel like... We built Juliet up over the whole season, and then she dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've had Juliet since episode two. Yeah. Like, Juliet opened episode two with her whole thing with the killing the French tourist, also named Matthew. And for us to have followed her as much as we did, I wanted a bit more payoff. I wanted a bigger battle, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I get that. Like we mentioned, a lot happens in this episode, and they were out of time. But I just wish we'd gotten more. I feel like we say that every episode. Yeah, that's true. Then we get this really great scene where Diana does save Matthew. Not only does she defeat Juliet, she also turns around and saves him. Did you say really great scene? Because I actually think the saving of Matthew scene is horrifically terrible okay in theory it's a really great scene how about that okay 
Okay, I'll give you that. Like the source material for the scene, what they wanted to do, what they were trying to do, was really great. Yeah. This is my least favorite scene in the whole TV series. Wow. Because they cut out all the lead up to it and then realized, oh, shoot, we actually need this bit for later. Mm-hmm. And then just put it in and it made no sense. And the whole thing with the goddess was weirdly done and... I d- it was just bad. Like, the voice coming out of nowhere, the... It just didn't... Wh- why Why would Diana call the goddess? What have we seen from her so far that she even believes or trusts in any sort of goddess? You know? Like... Yeah. I mean, they could have very goddess? easily fixed this by giving us a moment of Sarah's teaching Diana about the goddess instead of just how to light a candle. Like, that would have made it better. It still would have yeah. kind of been weird. Like, I still wouldn't have believed why Diana would ask the goddess. But, uh Yeah, it is so genuinely, yeah, it is genuinely confusing to non-book readers. Joseph kept asking me why there was a goddess, where it came from, why this world has one, because there's been no mention of it before, and he just did not get it. Which I, I understand. For me, it makes perfect sense, because I have read the book, but they cut out so much leading up to it that it really does come out of left field. And it leaves me hoping that we do get a lot more of that in the future seasons to flesh out the story. You know, maybe the, maybe they intentionally did it. Maybe it wasn't one of those moments where they, they were like, oh, crap, we didn't remember to put this in an earlier story. Maybe they intentionally left it this way to shock the audience, and then they're going to go backwards and flesh some stuff out in season two? Maybe? Maybe? I mean, that's the best I can hope for. I don't know. It just it just didn't make sense. Yeah. You know what else didn't make sense? Why did it take Miriam and Marcus so long to figure out something was wrong? I mean, obviously, because they didn't want them to get there and rescue them. But I don't know. I mean, this is I a got- world where Matthew could hear people's specific conversations from like a block away. Yeah, and it in the previous episode, he was in the house and heard Diana's heart beating in the barn where they are now. Yes. And heard her, like, say something. So, we, we know that the distance, like, they proved in the previous episode that Miriam and Marcus would have heard what was happening. Right. Yes. Did you get a sense of whether or not the barrier that got put up around them to keep everybody out, did Diana do that or did the goddess do that? I, I didn't get a sense. I didn't even really think about it. I feel like in the book, it wasn't even clear. Okay. I could be wrong, though. Right, right. And then I know that we are going to, like, super rave about Sarah later in this episode. Like, both Mm -hmm. of us are going to. But in this particular moment, Sarah telling Diana, Diana, you need to let him go. Yeah. It just made me angry. It kind of broke my heart a little bit. Like, she's telling Diana, don't even try. I guess I can see where... Okay, I don't quite remember. Does she say that after it's clear that Diana's about to force him to drink from her yeah it's right after the barrier goes up oh so i can see where she was thinking more about diana's safety Mm -hmm. and how if she thought matthew was too far gone there was no point in also killing diana yeah but it it was kind of a harsh a harsh moment i suppose like there wasn't any of that nuance in it she was just like no Mm -hmm. yeah it frustrated me And then I also want to know what happened to this knife. This knife was magically given to Diana by a goddess, and then it's never mentioned again. Like, this is, like, blessed, imbued knife. 
Like, did it just disappear and go back to the goddess? Are they holding it on as a family relic? Before I read your note, this had never even occurred to me. Like, what (laughs) did happen to the knife? I don't even know what happened to it in the book. This is clearly a special knife if a goddess gave it to them. So I'd be keeping that thing, you know? Yeah. I just I don't know. I think of really weird and random things when I watch TV. No, that's good. I'm surprised this didn't occur to me. Uh, so then we get Matthew, like he drinks a bit of blood from her wrist, but then she gives him her neck because I guess that blood is better. I don't I, know. Well, it seemed like the the wrist blood wasn't coming fast enough to actually help him. And so she asks the goddess for help again. And that's when the goddess says, or I don't think I even think the the goddess says anything then, except for, are you sure you'll pay the price? And Diana says, I'll pay anything. And that's when Matthew kind of wakes up enough and has enough strength to actually bite her. Oh, okay. So the goddess did something, imbued a little bit of strength in him somehow for him to do that. Right. And of course, we get the, the flashback sequence because we have to see all of the memories that he's getting from her while he's drinking her blood. But this one, they filmed it, not filmed, they edited it together a little bit nicer than the previous ones we saw. Yeah. It it was all very loving moments. It was calm, wasn't violent. Yeah, I liked this one. And I liked, like, it's made clear in the next scene, but even just watching the scene, it I get you get the feeling that Diana's seeing them too. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that because a lot of it was scenes that that from like that you could see were different from Matthew's perspective mm-hmm. about him, like trying not to bite her and her not really realizing that that was going on. Right. Yeah, it's probably the best flashback sequence we've gotten in the entire season so far. Although it kind of sucks that in an eight episode series, we have flashback scenes to compare. <laughs> Yeah, the show really does like its flashbacks. Anyways, Matthew does pull away from her neck, and then we quickly switch scenes to Gerbert and Domenico. And he's asking, or Domenico is asking Gerbert if he's heard from Juliet. <laughs> Just after we saw her die, which is great. And I love Domenico and how he's. Like, I, I do blame him chiefly for Juliet's death and how he's manipulated her throughout the season. Mm-hmm. But I just love how much he is out for himself. Yeah. And that's great. But here's the thing. So, obviously, he's lying to Gerbert because Gerbert doesn't know where she is. Domenico does, or at least knows what prompted her to leave. So, how did Juliet find them in Madison when nobody else, even Gerbert, can't? I mean, does Domenico actually know where she is? Did Juliet figure it out from the file Domenico gave her, but Domenico wasn't smart enough to do that? Like, how is Juliet there and nobody else can find them? A, you're right. (laughs) B, they did this, the book had an actual proper explanation for this, but, like, Juliet's a completely different person in the book, basically. Mm -hmm. And so my headcanon is that, because in the, previous episode i think domenico said that he could get diana's file for juliet again Mm -hmm. so i would presume that he got the file she looked at it and was just like checking places off a list you know Mm -hmm. so she went to check out the bishop house oh she's here 
Would that not be the first place everybody should look? Yes. But remember, Baldwin's put everyone else off from really investigating it. He turned all their attention towards Setu. Previously, everybody knew that they were at Setur's before. And I guess Gerbert doesn't have the same information we do, so he doesn't understand that she left to go find Matthew. Like, the real Matthew. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I can work with that, I think. I mean, it, it is better done in the book, but it's fine. Tell us how you really feel, Caitlin. I just mean, well, Juliet, again, Juliet's a completely different character. In the movie. Yeah, yeah. I, and they do sort of bring that up later. And I forget when it is, but Matthew says, if Juliet can find us, it's only a matter of time before Gerber or whoever does. Right, yeah. That's what prompts them to all leave the Bishop House at the end. Mm-hmm. So... Domenico does give Gerber some information here. I, I think it's great in this moment how Domenico continues to try to manipulate Gerber and it doesn't work here. Mm-hmm. He tells Gerber, I have information, but it's worth a price. And Gerber is like, uh, no, you've gotten enough. You can create a little shit. And obviously, I mean, they cut away to the next scene at that point, but he goes to Satu. So obviously, Domenico told him. I think Domenico probably figured out that he had carried that line as far as it could go. And he had to tell him. Yeah. Honestly, though, I still think, I still think Domenico's unknowing, like, unknowingly to Gerbert in control of that relationship. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of where I was going with that because, like, Gerbert, not Gerbert, Domenico knew that he couldn't push that one anymore because if he did, it would change things. Yeah. So he had to back off to continue to appear as if he's letting Gerbert have the power. Yeah, exactly. So then Gerbert goes to see Satu in some basement dungeon place. Storage room. <laughs> Storage room. Okay, that's better. No, but like it's a basement dungeon, but also a store. Like it's a really weird area. Yeah, it's full of crap. Yeah. They just threw Satu down there because they didn't know what to do with her. And I. Uh, I'm conflicted with the scene because Satu tries to be strong and she tries to stand up to Gerber, which I think is really admirable. Mm-hmm. Like she's trying so hard. But then she also tells him that Diana may be more powerful than Meridiana. And I don't understand why she would do that at that point, because at that point she is no longer aligned with the Gerber. She's back aligned with the witches. The witches want her power. So why would she give him more ammunition for wanting to find Diana? You know, there's so many, like, alliances and stuff going on in this episode, within, like, within the congregation and, and without. It's hard to really say if anybody has told Satu anything. Maybe Nox sent her out into Venice for her to get captured by them. You know, and they had, like, a plan. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But I can s- it does sort of feel like, just as, I like, I agree with you that it doesn't really make any sense. So what I'm thinking is that, Satu is more thinking, I am part of the congregation, and the congregation wants Diana, and that's why she's giving him information. Not so that the vampires can get her, but maybe she th- she's thinking that, like, if she couldn't hold her, maybe it's all of them that need to go and get her. Maybe. I'm not sure I buy that either. I'm not sure either, but that's the only thing I got. Okay. And then Gerber's uh, looking at, at Satu, who still hasn't recovered any of her magic, and he has that really great line where, like, she really did defeat you. 
And I just think that must sting Satu, who has so much more training and not more power, but like a lot of power. Like, as far as we know, this is the only time a witch has been able to beat her, and Diana wasn't even really trying. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I wonder if that's why Satu told Gerber, because she is so defeated, and she was so defeated by Diana that she just wants anybody to get her. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. There was a quick moment of continuity here that I was unsure of. They kind of fix it with a throwaway line later. But Mm -hmm. here, she says Baldwin kept her there. But at the end of the last episode, Domenico refused to give Satu over. It might just be that she doesn't know that. Um, Well, later, though, Gerber tells Peter Knox that Domenico has Satu with Baldwin's approval. So they tried to fix it. But it just struck me as weird. Yeah. That's all. It It is possible, though, that Domenico was like, I'm going to go tell Baldwin about you, and then threw her in this room. Mm-hmm. So the only thing she knows is that Baldwin knows. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Then we head back to our favorite place in the whole series. The, the Bishop, Bishop House. House. Yep. Um, and this is when Matthew and Miriam are sitting beside Diana? Yes. Oh, shoot. I guess I missed putting in, like, Diana getting medical treatment from Marcus earlier. That's okay. She got some medical treatment. Yeah, she got some blood. And they are talking about her markers. I just like blanked on anything sciencey there. And um, Miriam mentions that Witchfire wasn't in Diana's markers and that she wants to do some more testing on her. Which Matthew and, immediately shuts down. Yeah. And then Miriam continues to convince him and mentions that she wasn't part uh, or she wasn't descended from any of the the known witch clans that were mentioned in previous episode, the four witch clans. And so they want to test her blood more. And it really bothers me that we never see Miriam like dogging Sarah for her blood too. Cause Sarah is also a Bishop and presumably descended from the same people that Diana is. Okay. So how could Diana not be descended from one of the four ancient clans? Because they all knew she was a Bishop. Bishops are very prominent. They can be traced back forever so wouldn't they have already known so yeah so in the in the book they actually like mentioned that oh she's from a fifth clan that we are now just discovering and it is the oldest of the four clans and the only thing i can think of well hmm. yeah they, they don't really go into why they wouldn't have found anybody else from this clan yet yeah but I mean, I guess, okay, I guess they do kind of set it up because when Marcus wants to take her blood, he does ask her, don't you want to find out which clan you're from? Mm -hmm. Indicating that I guess they've never tested anybody with the bishop bloodline before. Yes. Okay. I guess I can go with that. But it just, it feels weird because they've made such a big deal out of the bishop family and how powerful the bishops are and how Diana's the last of the bishops. Yeah. And they're... And, like, even if the Bishop family, like, le- like they were doing most of their testing in England and Europe. But So even if the Bishop family left that area early on, you'd think there would still be other people from the same clan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it, it wasn't set up very clearly, mm-hmm. I think. But I bet Dr. Anya might have something to say about all of these genetic markers and lines and families and clans well let's go to the lab 
So today's science segment was really inspired by something that Miriam said kind of early on in the episode about how she wanted to understand how powers that they thought were extinct have survived. Um, And so that seems like a a good hook to talk a little bit about uh, something that in genetics we call penetrance. So I'm pretty sure that everyone is at least somewhat familiar with the idea of recessive genes, right? So the gene for blue eye color, for instance, is recessive, which means that um, if you have the gene for blue eye color and the gene for brown eye color, the brown eye color is the one that shows through. But that also means that the blue gene can basically be hidden, right? So you can have two brown eyed parents that are each carrying the recessive gene for blue eyes. And then if when they have a child's offspring, that child happens to get both blue eye genes, then the child will have blue eyes. Um, So that's like one way that uh, you could have traits that maybe were thought to not be there and then suddenly show up again later. So the idea of penetrance is a little bit similar, except um, it's not quite as simple as one copy, you don't see the trait, two copies of the gene, you do see the trait. So the idea of penetrance is just that you can have the gene but it's only going to become expressed in a certain percentage of people that carry the gene. And so um, there are a couple different ways that this can work. One is that the trait only becomes expressed over time. So maybe like young people with the gene, only 10% of them have the trait, but then by the time they get really old, maybe almost everyone is expressing this trait. That happens a lot with certain kinds of diseases um, that seem to just eventually get triggered by aging processes, but it takes time for them to get triggered in different people, and and they get triggered at different times in different people. Other times you can have low penetrance of a gene because there's an environmental modifier, so like maybe the gene can get turned on if it's if the person is exposed to a certain chemical or something. But if they don't get exposed to the chemical, it won't get turned on. Um, other times, it could be that there's actually multiple genes that are required for a trait. Uh, so maybe if you only have one, it doesn't get expressed. But if you have two or three or four different genes all working together, then it takes it takes multiple genes sort of like helper genes to turn the main gene on. And then so the final main way uh, that can affect the penetrance of a gene um, is something called epigenetics, which doesn't have to do with the actual DNA sequence itself. It has to do with sort of structural modifications that are kind of on the outside of the DNA that can determine whether the gene is expressed or not. So basically, you can kind of turn off different segments of DNA just by attaching different chemical groups to the outside so that uh, that DNA never gets turned into RNA, that RNA gets never gets turned into a protein, and then the trait doesn't get expressed. And so those are all different uh, scientific reasons for why it could be that, for instance, we haven't seen witch fire in witches in decades or hundreds of years, even though the genes for witch fire might still be around, it's just that they're not getting expressed in an observable trait 
in the people that have those genes. This is interesting that there is like an actual scientific explanation for this, just because I always got the feeling that it was, you know, the fictional Diana was meant to have all these powers type of thing. Mm -hmm. So I like this. Yeah. So it's not quite clear how exactly how Diana got all of these markers, right? Because science-wise, at least, in order for her to have these markers, either uh, her mom or her dad had to also have them and pass them down to her. But a very simple scientific explanation could be that her parents just had all these markers, but for some reason, the genes weren't turned on, and so they weren't expressing uh, which wind, which fire, which water, even though they had those markers. Interesting. Um, so then there were just a couple other science points that I wanted to go over quickly. Um, again, when when they're talking with, oh shit, what are the demon people's names? Sophie and Nate. So when they're talking with Sophie and Nate about, don't you want to know if your child is a witch or a demon? Um, like, let's get a DNA sample and find out. Again, like all of the baby's DNA has to come for mom or dad, unless spontaneous mutations function completely differently in this universe. So if Sophie and Nate are both demons, like, the baby's DNA should just say demon, if their DNA also just says demon, unless, again, DNA is functioning completely differently. Even even though, because Sophie, her, all of her family are witches, would she not carry any of that? Oh, no, you're right. You're right. So Sophie should have... If all of Sophie's family's witches, like she should just have witch DNA unless she had spontaneous demon mutations. But again, they're like, it's not even really clear what the demon traits are in the TV universe. Right. So that's all kind of hand wavy a little bit anyway, why she thinks she's a demon exactly. And then the other point um, that I was curious to see if you caught this, but at the end of the episode, um, when they're getting a second DNA sample from Diana, they do it with a cheek swab, um, which is actually how most DNA samples are taken these days. Like if you sign up for Ancestry.com or 23andMe, um, you just take a cheek swab and then mail it off to them. Um, and the reason that works is just because um, there's enough cells that get transferred to the swab that they can then extract the DNA from those cheek cells. Um, and that you know, the DNA in your cheek cells should be exactly the same as the DNA in your blood. They should be equally uh, effective at collecting DNA samples. Um, and so most of the time you use cheek swabs just because, you know, people don't like being stabbed with needles. And so I just, it made me think about that scene earlier on, I think it was in episode three, um, where they take Diana's uh DNA sample via blood in the lab and it's like a big deal about uh, where Matthew is like if anyone's going to take her blood it's going to be me <laughs> um, my Matthew good impression right there but yeah I just thought it was funny that they they like make a huge deal about the vampire blood thing early on and then they kind of like retcon it a little bit with like oh yeah that was completely unnecessary he just wanted to smell her blood like he absolutely could have taken a cheek swab I wonder if they did the blood first, though, because they were running a lot of tests at once and they wanted to make sure they had enough. So I've definitely done some DNA extractions, um, but it has been a while. So 
I'm not super clear about how much of a difference that would make. I know sometimes when you're trying to get uh, sequences from like tissue samples from like wild animals and specimens that you've collected, it can be an issue to get enough tissue if it's something like super small. But again, yeah, Ancestry.com, 23andMe don't seem to have issues with cheek swabs. You'd think they could just get like a lot of cheek swabs. From what I've heard, though, with the, I think it's 23andMe or one of them, you also have to send them, like, a jar of spit. Oh, really? Or maybe, maybe I'm getting it confused. Maybe it's, uh, it is actually just spitting into the thing instead of the cheek swab. I mean, but the principle is the same, right? They're collecting, like, yeah. epithelial cells from the inside of your mouth. Um, but most of the volume of a spit is actually not going to be cells. It's going to be basically just like water and then you know like mucosal secretions that are chemical um i mean they're like biological specimens but they're not cells so they wouldn't have uh dna in them maybe that's why you have to do like a whole yeah you have to like do a lot yeah but anyway i just it just i thought it was funny because when i watched the blood extraction the first time through I, like, didn't even question, like, oh, they want her DNA, of course they need her blood. And then when I saw the cheek swab, I was like, wait a second. I will say, if you tune into our spoilers section in this episode, you may find out why they specifically wanted to take two different samples from Diana. Ooh, okay. Um, And I do plan on reading the second and third book as soon as I get the chance. So for season two of the TV show, I should be more completely spoiled. I can't wait. Season two, book two is my favorite. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Which is interesting. I guess like a lot of people like Empire Strikes Back best. Nobody likes Temple of Doom best. (laughs) Well, didn't... Oh, we don't need to get into Indiana Jones. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't Mandy just hate all of Indiana Jones? Yes. Yes, she did. Basically. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about this episode? Or, you know, the finale in general. So I was very pleased when Juliet went after Matthew and and tried to hurt him instead of Diana. Um, I thought that was very progressive as far as deranged ex-lovers go. You know, a lot of times I feel like the woman goes after the other woman and, and it's played up as like female competition and aggression. And so I was like, Way, way to go for the guy who actually just left you. Not that, you know, you owe anybody continued romance as soon as you're done with it. But yeah, if anyone was to blame from Juliet's perspective, it should have been Matthew. Interesting point. I don't think we talked about that. Um, and then the other thing that I was curious about after watching this episode, um, not having read the rest of the books, um, I was just curious about how time travel functioned in this universe, because it seemed like they basically replaced their bodies. They didn't have to worry about their original selves. Um, And as far as I know, that's not typically how time travel works in fiction, but I also haven't read or watched a lot of time travel fiction like my exposure to this is pretty much like Hermione with her time turner in Harry Potter and so this actually gave me the idea of like oh man I want to just do like a time travel fiction podcast but clearly (laughs) I don't have time for that Um, but yeah that's like one thing that 
I'm kind of interested in looking at going forward if I was going to write like a master's thesis or something. Um, I would be interested in sort of like, yeah, comparing the physics of time travel across different fictional universes. Um, so if you, listener, know a lot about time travel in different universes, please write in and let us know. <laughs> and then we'll talk about it during the wrap up episode. Yeah, because they definitely haven't told us anything about the mechanics of time travel in this show yet. Um, we just got that very hand wavy throwaway line from Matthew. And then we don't really know what happens so maybe next season we'll find out yeah hopefully cool well that's all i had to say uh thanks for stopping by my lab and i'll see you guys during the wrap-up uh thank you to dr anya for teaching us about science one last time so we're back with uh miriam sort of walks away and matthew and diana are left alone to talk and we learned the barest amount of juliet's past that she was trained to infiltrate Matthew's heart and therefore his family, which is glossed over a lot here, but she was originally supposed to be a spy for Gerbert and mm-hmm. report back to him about the Declaremonts. Yes. And I guess this is where Matthew says, you know, if Juliet can find us, anybody can. And then he <laughs> has that, what if we time-walked? <laughs> and it's so dramatic here, too. It is very dramatic. But we are going to hide in time, which is actually a really brilliant idea, even if the line was delivered kind of oddly. And like, I didn't really get this sense when I read the book. And maybe it's just because I've read a lot about about the books and about the authors since the first time I read the books. But now hearing that line every single I'm like, ah, yes, this is where Deborah Harkness was always bringing us. Of course. And this is the whole point of this book. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to the past. If it kills this historian author. <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, we talked about in the last episode how they did a really poor job of bringing about the idea of time walking mm-hmm. in the season. And, and so you don't get that same sense when the line is delivered here that, of course, this is where we've been going because we just heard the phrase time walking in the previous episode for the first time. That's true. But we have had episodes and episodes of Diana being absolutely delighted about Matthew's stories of knowing Darwin and other people in the past. I'm thinking of how excited she was to to talk to him about the guy who discovered the heart was a pump, you know, things like that. And so I guess those could also be considered moments of foreshadowing of Diana being so into the past and wanting to know about these people that maybe she too could meet them one day maybe maybe i feel like i'm trying to be really generous here because i really love the show and it sounds like i don't no yeah i think i think it's it's good to keep in mind that sometimes people ask me if this show is good and i'm like i honestly don't know but i love it you know that's a good answer i think there are parts of the show that are spectacular yeah that that's where i am on that and i'm, I'm sure we will talk more about that in our last uh recap episode when we kind of wrap up the whole season yeah and even even the overly dramatic campy bits like i love them except for the ones that i've mentioned that i don't like obviously (laughs) but there i don't know the whole cast is just giving it their all and i'm like yes just embrace it yeah i do love how they take it very very seriously you know it's not campy it's not over the top it's this is my character and I'm going to play my character this way because this is what yeah. my character would do. Yeah. Uh, so then we're back 
to Venice and the congregation. It is time to pass judgment on Satu. Baldwin does call Matthew quickly before this happens, letting him know that either way, you know, everybody's probably going to be turning their attention back to them mm-hmm. and that they've got to figure, figure shit out. And that sort of leads the scene back to Matthew in a nice cut that's not a cut. Like, I appreciated the episode editing here because mm-hmm. instead of just cutting, we get like the phone call to Matthew and then we stay with Matthew for a bit. And I like that. Yeah, so we we cut from the same conversation from Baldwin to Matthew, and so it's very continuous. Yeah, just a good bit of writing there and editing. And then the uh, the house coughs up a gift. For Matthew. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like gets his attention into a, the empty room and a little creepy-ass doll comes out of the fireplace. It's called a poppet. And it's only creepy because it's really old, and so it's all like brown and blackened and dirty. Creepy-ass doll. (laughs) Even creepier, this creepy-ass doll coincidentally happens to be concealing an earring that once belonged to Isabeau. And uh, Diana walks into the room and is like, how did that get there? Like, what? How? How? And then Matthew says, what is this house trying to tell us? I'm like, geez, I wonder, Matthew. Right? Like, I think... Ever, oh, you know what? I just thought, have we had the conversation yet about how Diana needs three items to time walk? Because if they haven't had that conversation yet, then I can forgive this line. Um, Wasn't it in the conversation between M and Matthew whenever they were talking about time walking last episode? Oh, you're right. You're right. And then in this episode, he just brings it up again. Yeah. So yeah, no, I can't forgive it. <laughs> it's kind of obvious what the house is telling you, Matthew. Right? Yeah. Then we get to see Hamish again. Yay, Hamish. And he's at Septurs of all places. And I absolutely love the idea of Hamish and Isabeau being friends. It's the best. I feel like there's not anybody who Hamish couldn't be friends with. This is true. And like, it's ever so slightly awkward, I think. But that's what makes it fabulous. Yeah, yeah. And Hamish is gathering up a bunch of Matthew's stuff. No explanation as to why. Yet. They still don't actually give an explanation for this. I mean, textually, we can go back and figure out why, but they never explicitly say that we're gathering these things from various time points in Matthew's life so he can decide where he wants to go back in time. I always thought because, well, I guess we don't know this yet, but like because of the earring and the statue, that the gathering up of the other timeline stuff wasn't so that Matthew could decide so much as it was so that the people staying didn't know where they were. He didn't have the statue yet. Yeah. So I guess that's, I guess I was giving Matthew too much credit. (laughs) Whoops. Yeah. Um, But there's a great scene here as Isabeau is saying goodbye to Hamish and, and asking him to kind of look after Matthew while he goes to see them in the States. Isabeau says, send him and Diana, all our love. And it's so sweet. And I love it. I love that Isabeau has embraced Diana at this point. I do also. And and she puts like the emphasis on the and Diana. So mm-hmm. it's almost like, Psh, Matthew, whatever. Right. Diana's our new favorite. Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty great. I like it. And then we're back to America and time walking. 
or I guess they're just talking about time walking at first, and somebody does bring up the fact that they have to be careful about where they go because wars, disease, witch hunts. I guess it's Marcus who says all these things. Mm -hmm. And that the past is not a great place for humans in general and witches in particular. Right. So I think then it's it's Sarah who asks Diana what she thinks, which I love because, you know, you should always ask the people who are going to be doing these things what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And Diana's answer is pretty great. She says, I think it's a great idea depending on where, when we go, not where, when. Yeah. And I love that she's thinking in those terms. Yeah. So then they're out in the woods or Sarah M and Diana are out in the woods and Diana's holding a bunch of objects and she's got her foot in the air. <laughs> so weird. So weird. It's really good. It's funny. The scene is set up. It's hilarious because Sarah's on one side and M's in the other. And so I feel like this is kind of one of those angel devil scenarios. Except <laughs> yeah. not exactly angel devil. Because Sarah is all focus, focus, focus. You have to focus, Diana. And then it doesn't work. And so then M speaks up and says, no, you're focusing too hard on the wrong thing. You need to focus on Matthew because magic is in the heart, not the mind. And as soon as she gets Diana to understand that, it works and Diana appears where Matthew is. And I really love this other side of the scene with Matthew pacing the kitchen, worried that Diana's going to end up in the wrong time, that they're going to lose her forever, blah, 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 and just like generally losing his mind. And Miriam is like, it's fine. Don't worry. I'm sure it's fine. Like just completely done with his dramaticness. Mm hmm. And then Diana appears, and Matthew's just like, I knew you could do it. And then they quickly cut to Miriam's, like, the ultimate exasperated face. Right. It's really good. I love Miriam. The thing I noticed in this scene is she's sitting at the table, holding something in her hand, examining it with a magnifying glass, and I could not for the life of me figure out what it was. Okay, I have no idea. But also, I love this because it's so very much like... She has to be doing something, so some props person gave her a magnifying glass. (laughs) Right, it's weird that a vampire would need a magnifying glass for something that they could hold in their hand. Yeah, a vampire would not need it. They just needed her to be have something in her hand so she didn't look like so that her presence wasn't completely awkward. Right. Yeah, that's hilarious, and I love it. Do you also get the sense that at this moment they're treating time walking more like teleportation, just from going from one place to another and not from one time to another? Yes and no. Like when before she makes the step or whatever, Dana does ask where Sarah and Emma are going to be. And Sarah says, you know, it depends when you arrive. If it's before we came out here, then we'll be there. If it's after, we'll be here. And it's more, or I think it's more that... Dana just isn't traveling very far in time. Like, maybe she only traveled 10 seconds backwards. Right. You know, I think it's just the way they cut it, because it felt very much as if the scene with Matthew and Miriam was happening concurrently with the scene with um, Diana, Sarah, and Em. And so when she appears after Matthew and Miriam's conversation is over, it feels like it's real time and not back in time. Or it could have been 10 minutes. Oh, no, because she's trying to go backwards. I was going to say it could be 10 minutes in the future, but no. I guess we don't know how many times she failed. We only saw once. Yeah. So it's possible they were out there for like 20 minutes and we only saw like the first minute with Matthew and Miriam. Yeah. It just, it wasn't clear. That's all. 
I, I, I'm sure it's just that she's going back very small amounts of time mm-hmm. at first. Yeah. Okay. So then we go back to Venice. We spend a lot of time at the congregation in this episode. We do. We're with Peter Knox in the witches' archives, and who should walk right in but Gerbert? Because apparently nobody actually cares that this room is only for witches, including the witches. Right. Yeah, we never see any other species go in any other species archives. Like, the witches don't go to the demons or the vampires, and the demons don't go to the vampires or the witches. It's only vampires coming to the witches. And why wouldn't the witches have some sort of spell up to keep them out? Right? It doesn't make sense. The drama. I mean, I like it because it gives us this weird scene between Nox and Gerber where they form an alliance against Baldwin. And it's it's so very, like, it's so very Survivor. <laughs> I just kind of want a buddy cop show with Gerber and Knox. Except they wouldn't be buddies. I know. But you kind of want them to be. Yeah. I mean, I don't like their smarmy faces, so I wouldn't want this show. But (laughs) I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. It is very strange that they both sort of seem very quickly to be like, well, we both want to take Baldwin down and get Diana. So we are together now. Yep. It's a very quick scene. Mm-hmm. before we go back to the bishop house and see Hamish arrive. Yay! With two more demons in tow! And everyone's together now. Sophie and Nate and Hamish have arrived. All the people we like in one house. Yes. So we now have three witches, three demons, and three vampires in this magical house. And we just came from the congregation where there was three witches, three demons, and three vampires. Hmm. I wonder what that could mean. Me too. Um, But Sophie's, like, her whole family's life purpose is seen to fruition here. And she gives the statue to Diana. And then I think it's hilarious that immediately Diana's like, what? And Matthew's like, oh, I know exactly what that is. And it was really for Matthew all along. (laughs) Or, well, I guess it's Diana who uses it with the time travel. but Right. But the whole point was to get that specific thing to them in this moment. I mean, it really was. I think it's. I think it's great. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here with the mm-hmm. imagery because Sophie has always called it the White Queen, because mm-hmm. and she's always linked it to alchemy because she's always known that the person she needed to give it to had to do with alchemy, and alchemy has a White Queen, so that made perfect sense to her. But then we see the actual piece, and we see Matthew recognizing it, and. Sarah also recognizes it. So Sarah immediately says, it's Diana, the goddess of the hunt. And then Matthew says, no, it's a chess piece. It's the white queen from a chess piece I used to have. And so it's so all intertwined. It is a white queen. It does have to do with alchemy. And it has to do with Diana. Mm -hmm. Like, I really, really love how Deborah Harkness was able to do this. I agree. It's fabulous. I I don't have anything to add because you said it all. Okay. Deborah Harkness is just a miracle worker with words. I agree. And it is fabulous how that all comes together here Mm -hmm. and how everybody sort of realizes it. Yeah. And then very quickly and against Nate's sort of better judgment, Sophie decides that they trust everyone in this house and tells them about her lineage. And Miriam and Matthew are immediately like, like, this is the most interesting thing they've ever heard in their entire lives. We must know everything. Please give us your blood. Right. 
<laughs> I mean, but it's what you expect. Yeah, from I these just two. I love that they're vampires and they're always asking people for blood samples. <laughs> it's the best. It is pretty great. Yeah, it is pretty great. I also love that Nate was so gung ho to leave. Like he just wanted to drop off the statue and leave. And Sophie trusts them, tells them, and now they're staying in the house. Yeah, like they're it's, just on board. They are here now. I like it. So then we. Get I like. No. Nope, oh, ahead. I was just gonna say quickly. Um, I like that Sophie seems. Like, if you just sort of met them, Sophie would seem like the weaker of the two, like the one who needs help, because sometimes she doesn't seem like she's quite present in this world, you mm-hmm. know? Yep. But it's also very clear that Nate does anything she says. Oh, yeah. He worships the ground that. she walks on. Yeah. And then we get this great carving pumpkin scene. It's good. It's so good. And again, this episode, so much happens and it goes by so fast. But these little scenes like this make it clear that that these people are are an alliance now of their own. Right. Yeah, I love... So Sarah and Em take Sophie under their wing here, and they try to comfort her because Em heard her crying overnight, and Sarah's just like, tell us, tell us, you know, talk to us if you don't have anybody to talk to. And I feel like this is the first time that we've seen a softer side to Sarah's fierceness. I mean, we've certainly seen her love Diana and want to protect Diana, but it's always been in this very assertive way. And with Sophie, she was just quieter, softer. It was just slightly different from what we've seen before, and I thought it was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah's really great in this scene. And and M just immediately being like, you know, who do you talk to? And then both of them being like, us, it's us, you talk to us now. Right? Yeah. I want a couple of lesbian witch aunts to be the people I talk to. Yes. Right? Especially if it's Alex Kingston and, oh, God, what's her name? Valerie Pettiford. I knew that. Valerie Pettiford. Yes, especially if it's them. Please. And then sort of beside them, we have Nate and Marcus chopping wood. Well, we have Nate watching Marcus chop wood. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) I mean, if Marcus was chopping wood, I'd be watching, so. (laughs) Um, It's really great, and they're talking about the congregation, and I I know that Marcus is so much older than Nate, but it's very clear that the two young men have found each other. Yes, absolutely. They are both, they both want to change the world, and I love that they're bonding over their dislike of the congregation here. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love that it's Nate who calls attention to the fact that the congregation uses ancient texts to corroborate modern prejudices. Yes. You would think Marcus would say that, but Nate said it. And when I heard it, it just resonated with me. I was like, that's a really good line. And I love that it came from Nate. Yeah, it was so good. And a really good, at least season one, culmination of his story. Yes. You know, about him finding somebody he can talk to about all these things and which is what he's been trying to do, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, the just, whole season, he's just wanted to talk to people. Yeah, and find like-minded people mm-hmm. who want to work together to bring down the congregation, which we're getting the feeling that that's where all this is going. You know, I, I feel like before this episode, people just wanted to hide. Mm-hmm. But now with them all together and forming these bonds, right? you know, we get this feeling that something else might be happening. Yeah, we finally have a team to go yeah. against this other team. Yeah. So then we got some more time walking happening. And um, Diana and Matthew are dressed the way they were dressed in episode four. I should have looked that up. I thought it was three. 
No. Oh, no, no you're right. Yeah, no, it's four. Yeah. It is. It's yeah, episode four. four. Um, when they had the fancy dinner with Isabeau and Mart, and Diana says, we're going to go back 25 days, or something like, are we ready to go back 25 days? Or, I don't know, whatever. It's 25 days. And that really shows that we have skipped over some days, which wasn't clear previously about how much time it had been. Mm-hmm. And I do like seeing that it has been more than, you know, three weeks. Right. Yeah. It, it's been at least four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we were already at three weeks when they were at Sator because Matthew's like, you don't know me. You've only know you barely knew me three weeks ago. Yeah. So if three more weeks have passed since then, then time has definitely been moving even though it all feels very rushed. Yeah. I like in this scene that Diana questions, will we bump into our past selves? Mm-hmm. I don't like the hand waviness about how they explain it. Matthew says, oh, no, we won't do that. I think it's a different kind of past. Yeah, I think that was... What does that like, mean? I get, that, I get that they didn't want to go into it here. Or they didn't have time to go into it here. Yeah. But... That just makes it even more confusing. It honestly sounds like we're talking about the multiverse here. <laughs> yeah. Like, Which I don't I don't think that's what the time travel is in this mythology. Right. It, it, well, it's not. And I really hope that they dive into some of those mechanics when we get to book two. Which I think they will. For reasons yeah, I'll talk to. about. Yeah, we, I can mention that whenever we get to the, the spoilery section at the end. Um, mm. But I, I think they will. They have to. But it just feels weird that it's just this very hand-wavy, oh, no, we won't do that. No explanation. Yeah. I also think, and I, I didn't pick up on this until this most recent watch. I think I've watched this episode four times now. Mm-hmm. And watching them, so I went back and forth. So even just in the last couple of days, I've gone back and forth between the original scene of that night and... Mm-hmm this new scene where they've gone back in time. And this time it really struck me that I really think Isabeau knows that they're not the same Matthew and Diana. There's no explanation of how or why it's very, very subtle, but they linger on her face after she Mm -hmm. comes in the room and she has this odd look on her face. Like Mm -hmm. she kind of takes this deep breath in and just kind of, they settle on her for a second And then Matthew says, you're looking very well, mother. And she says, no better than I did this morning. As if she's responding to the idea that he hasn't seen her in a while. Yeah. I could be reading way too much into this. This is just what I came up with. I mean, seriously, I've watched it twice in the last two days. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I definitely think Isabeau knows something is up. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if she knows knows. Right. But... It's an interesting thought. I, I, I'd be interested to watch that scene again. I didn't, I didn't pay, I thought I had paid attention, but maybe I didn't because I don't, hmm, I don't know. She definitely knows something is different. Mm-hmm. And then we get the, the scene where they relax after they eat. And I just love the subtle differences in this scene from the original one. Mm-hmm. And like, you can kind of tell that Diana and Matthew know what's going to happen. And once Matthew gets up to dance with Isabeau, Diana switches seats and goes to sit beside Mart, and they hold hands. Mm-hmm. And it's really sweet. It is really sweet. See, <laughs> now who can't sentence? Yeah, it is really sweet. I love that Diana is so clearly at home and relaxed there, 
when she wasn't when that night happened the first time, which is another reason why I feel like Mart and Isabeau have to know something's weird because all of a sudden Diana's relaxed. Yeah. She wouldn't have been even earlier in the day. Um, I went back to the original scene and I played it frame by frame as close as I could get to see if I could pick up on any foreshadowing at all that mm-hmm. this night had another set of Diana and Matthew from the future in it. And I thought I had it. I really did. But then this episode didn't continue the thread that I was following. So in the original one, during the tango, Matthew's tie disappears and reappears a couple of times. Yes. And I have gone down the rabbit hole online with that scene. I was instantly thinking, oh, okay, because because the scenes where he's wearing the tie are the scenes that line up with the ones where I talked about how can she miraculously suddenly know how to tango. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, we're going to see him start to dance with Diana and he won't have taken his tie off like he did. But mm-hmm. they cut the future scene right like before he finishes, before he even lets go of Isabeau. So we don't ever see him with Diana. So they did not follow through on that. And so now I'm left thinking that was just a really bad continuity error. I mean, we can we can headcanon that he did dance with her afterwards. And that's what it was. Yeah. But it does seem like it was just a bad continuity here. Yeah. It would have been amazing if they had it, started the tango yeah. when he had left the tie on. Like, that would have just tied it together. It would have been a great Easter egg. I yeah, really thought well. I had something. I really did. I was so excited when I went back. I was like, no tie. Tie. No tie. Tie. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I am such a nerd. I will say what I really liked about this scene was how, like, there's no mention of it at all. We don't know that that's their goal, but it does very much feel like they're saying goodbye to Isabeau. And it's just, like we've been saying, it's very sweet and cute. And Mm -hmm. I love, I love Matthew's relationship with Isabeau. And I'm pretty sure he says I love you to her at the end there. He does. But it's, yeah. He does. In Occitan, he says, I love you, mother, mom, mommy, however you say that. However, it actually translates. I'm sure he wasn't saying mommy. (laughs) You know, that'd be weird. But you know what I mean. Trying to do the accent didn't work. Anyways, I love them. And then we're back to Knox and Gerbert. The best, worst alliance of all time. (laughs) Love it. Yes. And we get a bit of exposition about how Philippe set up the congregation so that a Declaremont always had to be one of the nine creatures on the council. Mm Mm-hmm. And Gerbert thinks that if they get rid of Baldwin, uh, Matthew can't be on the council because, you know, he's off franchising with a witch. Um, So it would have to be Marcus. Mm -hmm. And he makes it clear that he thinks he could control Marcus. Do you agree? Um, Yeah, absolutely. Gerbert thinks that they can control Marcus. But do you think Marcus would be controlled? I really want to say no, but I don't know. Hmm. I kind of think this idea comes up again later in the episode, and I won't talk about it more there, but I just wanted to make mention of it here. Right. And then we get some more um, unusual friendships, which this might be my favorite bit in this series. Uh, Well, in this episode, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is a good one. Um, As Hamish does call them here, the shadow congregation, all sitting around the table. Mm -hmm. I do wish a little bit more emphasis was put on them being this like reflection of the congregation 
because it is just kind of thrown away here. But yeah, it's still a really good scene with all of them and how how far they've come. Mm-hmm. Especially Sarah. Mm-hmm. She even gives a toast to unusual friendships, you know, and that's so far from where she was when Matthew showed up on her doorstep. She like puts her hand on his shoulder. Yeah. And they're all just family now. <laughs> I it's really so good. It is really good. It's fantastic. I just I really wish we'd gotten to see more of her development from where she was to where she is. Because even just it was last episode that Miriam and Marcus showed up and she was still super at odds with Miriam and Marcus. Like, yeah, what's your problem, Junior? You know, and now all of a sudden she's friends with everybody. Now, granted, time has passed between the two. We know that, especially Mm -hmm. since they just time walked back 25 days. So, you know. There's been a little bit of movement, but we just didn't get to see it. Yeah, again, this, I feel like this season needed like two more episodes. Yeah. You know, just shoved in the middle here. Yeah. But we get what we get. And I love a good found family story. Yeah. Even though some of these people are actual family. Yeah. So this is just, this is, this is Caitlin's heroine right here. This is my jam. Me too. Absolutely. Yeah. I talk about it a lot over on Pop Culturally Deprived. So. Definitely my jam. And then uh, Hamish and Matthew are talking afterwards, and we learn that Hamish is a knight of the... <laughs> just left my head. The Knights, the of, Knights Lazarus of Lazarus of Bethany. But they just say the Knights of Lazarus. Yeah. And I guess that was really the only point of that scene, because then we quickly move on to, I think, the only scene we really get where it's just Hamish and Diana. Yes, it is. And Hamish warns Diana in this scene that time traveling might change Matthew and that she has to be prepared for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He lets her know that, that where they're going, she's going to be completely reliant on him. Yeah. Which I think is interesting because at this point, Diana doesn't know where they're going and it sounds like Hamish does. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they're going, you know, anything farther back than 70 years, then she's going to be completely reliant on him. That's fair enough. Absolutely. Um, And I, I just like that he, he warns her that Matthew might be different in the past. Maybe we'll revisit that later. Uh, and then we're back in Venice for Satu on trial. Although, no, actually, this is just them walking into the room, isn't it? Because then we're quickly back. Yeah, it's the start of the trial with Satu uh, meeting with Knox and the other witch dude. But we get her mentioning that her power is coming back. Yeah. And then we get Baldwin walking with more purpose than anyone has ever walked. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I do want to call attention to Nox's response to Satu getting her power back because mm-hmm. his immediate response is good. We might need it today. So he's definitely being combative. He's walking in there for more than just Satu's trial. Yeah. Because I don't think he's talking about using it in case the trial doesn't go well for Satu. Right. Do you think Satu's in on everything here? Yes. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I, um, yeah, you don't know so it at this point, but when she stands up after... They find her guilty, and she continues to stand there, and she gives her speech about Baldwin. That was totally right. premeditated. Right, yes. I rehearsed. forgot about that. Yeah. No, I obviously wrote the notes about it later. So, <laughs> okay. Yes. And then we start the goodbyes. So, Matthew, um, the demons are leaving the Bishop House. <laughs> Matthew gives Nate this folded note and is like, you know, if you don't feel safe at home, go here. And I'm just so interested about what is on this note. Does it just say Setters, France? You know, like, does it, what, what is the address of this castle? 
don't know. I think castles have addresses, too. They have to get mail. Okay, so when I was in England, I lived in a small little house that happened to be on an estate. And literally the address was the name of this house, the name of the estate, the name of the city, the name of the county, and a postal code. There was no numbers. There was no road. Nothing. Okay. It was just a list of names. Well, maybe it was just Sator, whatever this region is, France. <laughs> like, I don't know what the village name is. Yeah, no, neither do I. Interesting. Though it's in book two, so now that's going to bother me. We know that the note said France because Nate looked at it and said France. (laughs) Right. The important part of this is that Matthew mentions that this is where Sarah and Em are going. And oh my God, all I want in my life now is Sarah and Isabeau in the same room. Oh, yes. This is going to be freaking fantastic. Yes. Cannot wait to see it. Two great actresses, two great characters. I'm ready for that. And you can just see Mart and M completely bonding over wanting to take care of everybody. Yes. It's oh, it's going to be so good. I cannot wait. Plus, Lindsay Duncan and Alex Kingston together is the stuff dreams are made of. Yes. And I just like the idea of these four powerful women in a castle together doing whatever the hell they want. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty great. And then as he leaves, Hamish is like, what about the Book of Life? And it's kind of like, oh, Yeah. We haven't talked about that in a while. (laughs) It's important. But Matthew does mention it, that they're going to the past before the book has been spelled. So they might be able to find it there. And also before it's destroyed or broken. Or the pages are taken out. So that definitely sets up a thread of perhaps one of the things they'll do in the past is look for the book. Like Diana will learn her craft, look for the book. Some time will pass and they'll hide from the congregation. It'd be great. Time walking is looking more and more like the best thing they could have done. I think so. And then we are back for the actual trial. Which may be one of the best congregation scenes we've ever had. It is really good. And I love the way, like, Setu is dressed here as if a lawyer advised her to dress like, looking like a young, innocent child. (laughs) You are not wrong. (laughs) I think it's fantastic. She is instantly basically accused of found guilty and she's told that she will be stripped of her seat in the congregation but she is given to the witches to punish which i think is interesting i guess the congregation doesn't dole out the punishment the different species hubs do well she's uh she's kicked off the council right yeah, she's kicked off the congregation but they but baldwin specifically says the witches will decide how to punish you well, so I would think that, like, the congregation pun- punishment is being kicked off. Yeah, and then he's like, if the witches want to do more to you, they can. Right. And then uh, Satu very quickly turns the tables and accuses Baldwin of helping Matthew to hide Diana. And therefore, treason against the council. And everybody who's in on this alliance jumps in and Gerbert brings up the Knights of Lazarus and says that that's why Baldwin would do this as loyalty to the Knights and its Grandmaster, Matthew. Baldwin, of course, is denying all allegations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then Gerbert accuses him of lying and says that, you know, your heart rate has doubled and your pupils are dilated or whatever. (laughs) And, you know... That's, I'm sure at some point in the past, Gerbert has become very intimately knowledgeable with everybody's heartbeat and eyes, right? Well, I mean, they're all in the congregation together, so they've clearly known each other for a long time, and they've spent a fair amount of time together. 
So, but like, yes. Does a vampire's heart beat? Like, is it once a minute? So now it's twice a minute? Oh, wow. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, we were told you know? early on in the series that their hearts don't beat very often because their bodies are so efficient. Mm-hmm. Huh. Anyways, it's just a really weird line. It is, and but it's it, just so Jerbera can say, you're lying and I can prove it because vampires yeah. have a built-in lie detector. Yeah, maybe maybe is completely lying here, but the witches and the demons are going to buy it. Right, exactly. I don't know. And then everything sort of quickly switches here to people jumping on, accusing Baldwin of wanting Diana in the book for himself. And, oh my god, I wanted to punch Knox so much in this scene. Like, maybe more than I've ever wanted to punch him because of his smarmy little face. <laughs> I hate him. I can tell when I was reading your notes. It's pretty... Pretty... I don't know. I, I want to punch his face every time I see him. So yeah. it's just kind of always there for me. I hope Owen Teal is an asshole just because I like <laughs> just just because of like through who he has played in the pop culture that I am familiar with. I just hate him, mm -hmm. you know, so I hope that he is an asshole in real life so that my hate is justified. Yep. And then Agatha is the best. She is the best, but we need to talk about why she's the best, like what happens to trigger her being the best before we say she's the best. Right. <laughs> All I wrote here was, fuck yes, Agatha, yes, so you I did. don't remember. So after Peter Knox is done being all smarmy and everybody is, you know, rabble rousing and yelling and like throwing stones, metaphorical stones at Baldwin, Jerbear stands up in the middle of the congregation circle and declares that Baldwin is guilty and will be put to death by beheading to and which fire. and fire absolutely beheading and fire to which baldwin explodes this is the 21st century and that's a 14th century punishment and jerbear is like i don't care and then agatha stands up and as you have so eloquently written in our notes fuck yes agatha because agatha says excuse me there's a rule that says we have to vote on this stuff so you can't just declare him guilty and kill him. And then they're like, okay, we'll vote. And Setu says, do I get a vote? And since she is still on the council at that moment, they say yes. And then they're all about to vote. And Agatha's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, maybe you decide things for your underlings. But demons, we like to talk about it. So we're going to have a recess. Mm -hmm. And then the best moment when she walks out and she looks your bear right in the eyes. And walks past him like, yes. 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 So good. She's just not afraid of him at all. And I love her. And I love that she just throws this shit in his face. Ah, it's so good. It is pretty good. I just, I want to read everybody your notes for the end of the section. Okay. Because they, they make me happy. Caitlin has written, fuck yes, Agatha. Death by beheading and fire. I guess they just never update things. Fuck yes, Agatha. Fuck yes, Agatha, in all caps. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty great. I do, I do really like Agatha. <laughs> and then we quickly come back in for the verdict, which I think is interesting because when they left, it appeared that only the demons left. Jerbear and Baldwin stayed 
Knox and Satu stayed. But when we cut back, everybody but Baldwin is coming back in. So apparently during the break, everybody didn't leave to go discuss it except for Baldwin, which I guess even though he gets a vote, he doesn't get to discuss with the vampires what his fate's going to be. That's fair. (laughs) And so then we take a vote and it is definitely not the outcome anybody expected. Yeah, so all the witches and Gerbert vote for beheading and burning, and all the demons, Baldwin, and Domenico vote for not guilty. Mm -hmm. So now this is... I love it. Yeah, it's pretty great. And now Gerbert has now lost the confidence of two people that he thought he had. Juliet has left him, and now Mm -hmm. Domenico is also splitting away from him. And it just makes me wonder what's going on in Gerbert's head. I also think... Domenico made like a very strategic choice here. Like Gerbert now knows where Domenico lies. Mm-hmm. And that is with Domenico, not yes. with Gerbert. Absolutely. And Domenico makes that even clearer to the audience whenever he walks up to Baldwin and says, you owe me a favor now. Yeah. And I love that, that Agatha does the same thing. It's like, like, Domenico walks up and is like, you owe me. And then almost immediately afterwards, Agatha walks up like, and you owe me. And Baldwin's just like, well, shit. Agatha is you know? better, though, because Agatha basically says, I would have done this anyway because I have my own reasons for wanting Diana safe. Mm-hmm. But you still owe me a favor because you're the one whose butt got saved here. Like, I feel like that's pretty ballsy. It was, and I love it. And I, I love all the dynamics here, the, the the politics. It's great. It is pretty great. And then we switch back to the Bishop House for more goodbyes. More goodbyes. And uh, this is Sarah and M leaving. And I, I really like this scene for a lot of reasons. And one of is how they've set it up it really mirrors the goodbye that we saw with Diana's parents in the last mm-hmm. episode. Yeah. And it's, like, in the same place with a similar-ish car, because Sarah's car is a million years old. And it's just really good. Yep. And I like that uh, Sarah calls attention to the fact that she never thought she would ever be staying in Isabeau de Claremont's house. Mm-hmm. And I love how Em is just so... She's so adorable. And she says this really heartfelt goodbye to Diana. And then she immediately goes and hugs Matthew. Mm-hmm. It's so cute. And I love her. You're not going to mention the line? Sure. She does also mention that eating nuts and berries at a vampire's house will help them lose weight. And I just thought that that was wholly unnecessary. And also, Mart would cook them whatever they want. Like, she would be insulted that she, this implication that she couldn't cook food for humans. (laughs) I actually thought it was really funny. So I was surprised to see that in your notes. I think it is the first... I'm going to say vaguely prejudiced thing that M has said. And I, and I say it that way because M only knows what she's been told and what she's been taught. And we already yeah. know that what everybody's been taught about vampires, particularly witches, is wholly wrong. You know, and so I, I thought it was cute and funny, but maybe I'm wrong. I feel like she could have made a mention of it without mentioning the losing weight thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like they could have made that same joke without implying that M was trying to lose weight. Okay. You know? All right. But it is it is a funny bit where she's like, nuts and berries, I guess that's our, our fate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Sarah and Diana have their goodbye. 
And it's it's sad. And I love it. Yeah, it actually legitimately made me teary-eyed, even the fourth yeah. time I saw it. Probably more so the fourth time I saw it. And it's just so nice to see them, like, after the whole season of them always being at odds, them being on the same page here. And Sarah says something about how powerful Diana is and that she's so glad she's not going to waste that power. Mm -hmm. And I really like it. Yep. And Diana just accepts the compliment and says, thank you. Mm -hmm. Which is so rare. Not just for Diana, but I mean, just for people in general, especially on TV, to just accept a compliment. Yeah. Especially in like parent-child dynamic. Right. Yeah. So then M and Sarah drive off and we get one last set of goodbyes. I do love how Miriam is just like, I don't do goodbyes. Peace. Right. Walks out. (laughs) It's perfect. Miriam is so Miriam. Yeah. She's so consistent. It's great. And then Dana leaves the room too, so that Matthew and Marcus can be together or like alone, I guess. And I love this scene so much. I love that, you know, our first scenes with the two of them back in episode one were very obviously Marcus feeling inadequate, Mm -hmm. you know, feeling very much like, this is my dad, like in a I've disappointed him way. Right. And here, you know, you see that at the beginning, but then Matthew very clearly hands him, or very quickly, uh, hands him the letter and he reads it and he's like, Grandmaster, I can't do that. And then Matthew shows that he has every confidence in him. And I think that this plays great against the scene that we saw earlier with Gilbert saying that he thinks that he could control Marcus. And here is Matthew clearly stating that he believes in Marcus mm-hmm. and knows that he is ready for this leadership. And I love it so much. Oh, yeah. It's a great scene. And it, it ends with them hugging and that is just everything. We really need more male relationships like this on TV. It's so good. Like non-romantic, same-sex, male affection. Mm-hmm. Like, I I'm, loved it. We, we do also need more romantic, same-sex, male, but like, whatever. All around, we need more male-on-male affection on TV. It's, yes. it's not illegal. Exactly. But yeah, and I really love, Marcus says, like, I can't follow you. And I forget exactly what Matthew says, but it's clear that he felt the same way about following Philippe. Mm-hmm. And I just, I like that that family connection there, that idea that Marcus looks at Matthew the same way that Matthew looked at Philippe, who we know everybody sort of knows. And even if they don't like him, they respect him. Right. Yeah. So, and that's how Marcus sees Matthew. Yeah. And I like that. Mm-hmm. And then everybody's gone except for Diana and Matthew in this house. Yeah. And this is, I don't know why I like this slide so much, but Matthew at one point, or they're out on the porch and Diana's, you know, lighting the the jack-o'-lanterns. And Matthew's standing there all brutally and looks at her and says, it's time. (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition because you, I mean, like you just said, he's looking at her all brutally, but she is absolutely delighting in the simple magic of lighting the jack-o'-lanterns because she's figured out how to do it. Yeah. I, I love it. It's great. And I don't I don't know why the I don't know if it's irony, but the it's timeline like I laugh every time. <laughs> it's time to time walk. And then I forgot to put this in the notes, but the most annoying thing in the whole world, they turn off all the lights very deliberately, and then they leave the fire going upstairs. Yeah. What? I know. Like, an electricity bill is not as big of a deal as burning the house down. 
I guess because it's they're hoping it'll just go out or the magical house will take care of it. I don't know. Okay, magical house taking care of it. I'll buy. Okay. I'll buy that. That's fine. Okay. I feel better now. <laughs> yes. Um, then we get Matthew and Diana in their period clothes ready to go. Like, yes. Matthew is all ruffly. And it's Diana, pretty great. It is pretty great. It's one of my favorite Matthew looks from the season. And I like that it's this level preview of season two. Yes. And we get Diana in a nightgown, not a full dress, which is interesting, I think. Yeah. I don't, they don't really give an explanation for why it's a nightgown and why they couldn't find her an outfit somewhere in Zipters, but. Right. Maybe they just haven't held on to anything. Or maybe maybe they like Marie Kondo'd recently, so. (laughs) (laughs) They got rid of all the 1500 stuff. It did not spark joy, so it was yeah. out. <laughs> um, but it is revealed that Hamish also brought Diana a gift from Isabeau, uh, a ring that Philippe had given her. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful ring. It is inscribed in French, and it's translated to my whole heart and my whole life, which from a vampire to a vampire, I think is the most stunning sentiment ever. Because it's not just like, if I tell somebody I'm going to love them for the rest of my life, that's like maybe 50 years. Mm-hmm. But when a vampire does it, it's forever. And well, Philippe died, so not forever. But, but he didn't know that he was going to die. Yeah. You know, I mean, Matthew is 1500 years old. Can you imagine him giving another vampire the same ring? No, that's it. it it's, it's interesting. It just, it makes my heart happy. And then it makes it sad when I remember Philippe is dead. But yeah, poor Isabeau. Yeah. And then we get some Faustus and a reveal that Matthew knew Christopher Marlowe. Matthew knew everybody. I don't think there's anybody Matthew didn't know from 1590. And then Diana says we're going back to London. And A, the two of them have never been in London in this TV show. And B, Matthew says they're going to the Old Lodge, which is in Oxford. London does not equal all of England, people. They're going to Oxford. Sure it does. Geography, schmeography. That line bothers me. (laughs) Okay, so then there's a couple things that are happening here that that we're moving towards. This is when we get the phone call from Baldwin to Matthew, but apparently it's Matthew's voicemail, not actually Matthew, where Baldwin is telling him that people from the congregation know where they are, um, which also implies that Baldwin is the one who told the congregation. Yeah. Because the the last scene we had with them was Jerbear saying, fine, you're not guilty of this. You're not going to, you may live, but you're still going to tell us. Um, so Baldwin is giving them a heads up. And this is intercut with the scenes of Satu, Gerber, and Peter Knox pulling up to the house, walking up the driveway. Mm-hmm. And then Matthew and Diana are doing their final preparations to leave. Can you please, please, please tell me why Baldwin didn't call Matthew until they were there? It's a freaking 11-hour flight from Italy to New York. I honestly don't know what to tell you. I mean, are they implying that they somehow magically teleported? I don't think so. Because such a big deal is made out of witches being able to fly that if they could teleport, right. they wouldn't care. That's what I thought. So I don't understand why Baldwin waited. You know, at this point, it's probably been 15 or 16 hours to tell him that people are on the way. So it could just be bad editing. Okay, I will. Ex- I, I can give you that. Maybe... Maybe they should have just put that scene right after the last congregation scene before the last set of goodbyes. 
Yeah. Like well, that could be the thing that tipped off all of the goodbyes after the demons have left. My thinking on this is a little bit based on the book in that uh, Matthew probably gave Marcus his cell phone. And since, you know, they don't want to just leave it around the bishop house and they can't bring it with them. Okay. So it's probably off and Marcus has it and Baldwin is calling it. So, like, Matthew wouldn't have gotten the message anyways. Right. I know that. But just the way it was edited together made it seem like Baldwin waited until they were at the house to call Matthew. And it was was really, really weird. It was poor editing, I think. And then Satu is the one using magic against the defensive spells on the house. Satu, who did not have any magic earlier in the episode and has barely just started getting them back. Well, maybe the 11-hour flight was good for her. Not that an 11-hour flight is ever good for anybody. Right? But I don't know. Maybe she slept the whole time and it was very rejuvenating. (laughs) I've never found that to be the case, but... Right. Right. Okay. It just, it didn't make any sense to me. So there was a, there, I mean, there was a lot of stuff happening in this final scene. I mean, so many quick cuts back and forth and it, some of it just didn't make sense to me. And I wish they had done it a little bit differently. On a serious note, what I always assumed was that Peter Knox was doing the shield around them. So it was only Satu left to. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't, I didn't think of that at all. It, it's not clear who's doing the shield, but. I guess right. it's kind of nice that they don't have somebody holding up their hands in a yeah in that yeah. like classic shield pose. Yeah. But let's talk about how amazing the house's defensive spells are because Diana and Matthew have absolutely no idea that there is somebody literally trying to break down the door. Yeah. It's pretty great. And then, you know, we get Diana trying to guide Matthew through taking that step. And then we get the biggest season ender cliffhanger ever. Mm-hmm. where they take the step simultaneously as Satu breaks down the door, and we end with Diana whirling around at the sound of the door breaking down. And we're left wondering, did they make it? Did they not make it? She's not holding Matthew's hand anymore. Is Matthew there? What has happened? Yeah. It's all very intense and all very fast. So it is very quick and very intense, and everything's kind of blurry. So do you, do you think they made it to the past? Well, I'm assuming that since you asked me this question, you have an answer in mind already. And of course, I've read the book, so I know what happens. But I actually, I went back through this almost frame by frame to see if I could pick it up. Because mm-hmm. the first time I watched it, I wasn't really paying attention. Actually, the first couple of times I watched it, I wasn't really paying attention. And my first assumption was, well, they're really trying really hard to make it seem like she didn't make it. Mm-hmm. which for non-book readers would be absolutely plausible and reasonable. So I went through this last time and I went through frame by frame to see what happened. And God, I tell you, I went back and forth. For like 15 minutes, I'm sitting here, fast forward, rewind, pause, play, pause, play, fast forward, rewind, pause, play, pause, play. It's very tedious doing this because I wanted to look at the room. I wanted to see what we were seeing. Um, and then I remembered that he said they were going to the lodge. So the room would be different. But they made such a big deal out of the chandelier that was in that room. It was an electric chandelier um, that had bulbs with lampshades over every bulb. And they showed us that chandelier in a couple shots. And when the chandelier wasn't in the frame, the reflection of that chandelier was in the painting hanging over the fireplace behind Diana. Mm -hmm. And 
in that last moment when Diana whirls around, you can see a chandelier hanging up behind her that's made out of candles. Yeah. So it is clearly not the same place. We don't know where it is. It, she was interrupted. Do we know that they actually made it to 1590? No, but we know they're not in the same place they started. I had known that you had gone through this scene so intensely. I would have just linked you to the gift that somebody, some nice talented person on Tumblr posted where they slowed it way down and like brightened it a million degrees. Mm-hmm. Degrees? Whatever. And you can clearly see that it is the old lodge. Okay. That's cool. Because they did, I mean, they did really, really well with the camera work here. Yeah, they did. Because they they worked really hard not to show any part of the room that they were starting in, other than where the bed was and the wall with the fireplace. Mm-hmm. And then that final shot, it's so dark all the way around her. You can't really tell where they are based on how they shot it. And it's such a tight frame. Yeah. That there's not that much around her to be able to s- compare. Are they in the same place or not? I, so I, I think it was done really well because most people are going to assume, if they haven't read the book, they're going to assume that she didn't make it, that she was startled. But for people who pay attention or who look on Tumblr, <laughs> you can you know see they did give you the details through it. To, to know the answer before the next season starts. Yeah, I would say I didn't notice at all the first time I watched it. Like, I was just like, oh, they've done a clever thing and left it up in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I watched it again and was like, have they left it up in the air? And then I went online and was like, yeah. ah, no, they have not. It makes me wonder how many other little things that we've talked about have actually been foreshadowed, like things that we've talked about where we've missed the foreshadowing. It makes me wonder if those things have been foreshadowed in very small and clever ways that we just didn't notice. Because this was done very cleverly. And I don't know. I I always sort of feel like when this show is on, it's on. And when it's off, it's off, you know? That's fair. So, like, the things where we've been like, this was bad, have been genuinely come out of nowhere and not good. Right. And the things that were like, oh, no, they did this fabulously yeah. are the things that they paid attention to and yeah. put the effort in. Well, I can't wait until season two to see how it all starts to come together. I am ridiculously excited about season two. Yeah. But. Okay, so before we get into the spoiler section where we can talk about what may be coming up, let's talk about favorite sections that we haven't already talked about from this episode. We've we've gushed a lot. We've also talked a lot of shit about the episode. Yes. (laughs) We liked it, it, clearly. Back and forth. (laughs) But what were the things that that really, really made you happy about this episode? Um, So two of the things that I wrote down we've already gone into, which are all the goodbyes were so sweet. And it was just nice to see how all the relationships came out from like when we met everybody individually at the beginning. I loved seeing everyone come together Mm -hmm. and then say goodbye. It was great. But one thing that I did really love is in the scene where they're going back to set tours when Diana tells Matthew to raise his leg and then he goes to put it down. She's like, when I tell you. Right. It was good. It was cute. He, he kind of very sheepishly put it back down and then waited yeah. for her to tell him to lift it up. And yeah, it's nice. good. I think you said one of the earlier scenes in this episode was your favorite from the series. And I think my favorite from the series was also in this episode, and that was the dinner with our shadow congregation, with all nine of them around that table, just 
enjoying each other's company. Yeah, it was really good. And then we talked uh, about that the the goodbye between Marcus and Matthew, mm-hmm. and you went into you know really great detail about how this is a really good foil to, or I guess counterpart to how Matthew felt about Philippe and and all of that. And this is Matthew showing his confidence in Marcus. And I just want to point out the lines that he said there, Mm -hmm. because one of them he said in French and I looked up what it means. Um, So he tells Marcus, he says, my son, you are the only one that I trust to do the job. And then he hands the letter to Marcus and then he steps back and he bows his head and in French, okay, I'm going to try this. Don't laugh mm-hmm. at my French pronunciation because I do not speak French. I never took French. Anything. He says, Je suis à votre command, Seigneur. Which means, I am at your command, my Lord. So he tells Marcus that he's the only one that he trusted to do the job. And then he like acquiesces all of his power to him. And I think that is just a wonderful like goosebump-inducing moment. It was really, really good. And Matthew's French accent is slightly better than yours. Everybody's French accent is slightly better than mine. I swear I listened to that like four or five times trying to get it right and it still didn't work. I can say it really good in my head, but I'm pretty sure it would not translate well outside of my head. <laughs> All right. If you have not read the books, please proceed at your own risk. In this section, we are going to talk about things that, well, are different and things that are coming up next season and that we're in book two. So please turn us off now if you don't want to be spoiled. All right. So we talked a lot in this episode about how there were things that were done better in the book. So what was missing or done better that you wish had been more like the book than what we got? I don't know if I wish all of this was still there, but some of it, like they didn't mention... They implied that Miriam's going to go off and find this, so I suppose it's going to come up in in season two. But um, the vanishing twin syndrome that Diana had, so she had a twin brother who died in utero. Wow, I completely forgot that was a thing. And she absorbed him, and that's why she has the witch fire, but it didn't show up on her markers. Mm, Okay. And that that just comes into play with the whole storyline that they've cut about crossbreeding species and blah, 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 blah. So I guess they're saving all that for season two. Yeah, I think so. And just, I think it is, I think we talked about this earlier, but there is no congregation in the book, Discovery of Witches, the first one. And there is so much of it in this episode. Right. Well, a lot of that has to do with the, I mean, because the congregation is mentioned. Yeah. But because the first book is all about Diana's point of view, she never sees the congregation, so we wouldn't see it in the book. Yeah, and I just, I actually think this is a change that I like, mm-hmm. that I like that they did, that we do see so much of it, and we get a lot of the the uh, conflict coming mm-hmm. from there. Right, and I love that we got to know Gerbert up front, we got to know Baldwin up front, Satu, mm-hmm. we got all of these storylines from other characters that fleshed out what we knew about them in, from the books, and I, I did really enjoy that aspect of the season. But I also really, really wish they had given it two or three more episodes because they crammed so much into eight episodes that it didn't entirely work. Yeah. The things that they had to cut out for time so that they could put other things in that were necessary. I, I can't imagine watching this without having read the books and actually understanding it. Especially that whole goddess bit. Like, right. 
I've talked about that already, though, so let's not let's not get into it. But yeah, ugh, ugh. So I did miss the house making rooms for everyone. Me too. The house was much more of a character in the book. Yeah, and I think this one probably belonged a little bit more in the last episode. But when Marcus showed up in the book, he immediately jokingly calls Diana mom, mm-hmm. and I love that moment so much. It's so good, right? And then another bit that was in the book that. It's just a small little character moment, but um, after she's gotten her blood transfusion and is feeling better, Matthew sort of asks Diane if she wants anything, and she says she wants to talk to Isabeau. And Matthew's like, oh. And so he calls Isabeau, and Diana talks to her, and they talk about how she almost lost Matthew. And I like this connection that the two of them have, that she wanted to talk to Isabeau about how she was feeling about almost seeing Matthew die. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really sweet in the book. And yeah. it showed them, it, ju- it was just a good part of their relationship that I liked. Yeah, I, I don't really feel the loss of that so much. It would have been nice to see, but I feel like the way they framed the relationship, I I wouldn't question that Diana would want to talk to Isabeau in, in that space, that she does have that relationship with Isabeau now. The, the way they went to say goodbye and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. I You're right. I don't actually think it really would have worked in this show. So... I, I agree with their decision to cut it, but yeah, I just liked it. Yeah, it was, it was sweet, sentimental, mm-hmm. wonderful. So I wish that we had gotten a little bit more of the prep from the past, like mm-hmm. Diana getting vaccinations against things like smallpox. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess they couldn't really do that since they decided to keep the destination a secret even from Diana. I don't have any idea why they did that. I, I mean, they could have, because again, if you're going back anything more than 100 years, get every vaccination you can. Right. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. They could have, but they didn't. I don't know. It just would have been nice. Yeah. But I guess time-wise, it wouldn't have fit. That's fine. The other thing that I wish had been done slightly more the way they did it in the book was, so in in the episode, we have... I can't remember who it is. Oh, I think it's Nate who points out that it's three demons, three witches, and three vampires under the same roof. He says Mm -hmm. that on the phone to Agatha. And then later in the episode, Hamish calls them a shadow congregation. Mm -hmm. In the book, it's Sophie who calls them a conventicle instead of using congregation. Mm -hmm. Um, A conventicle is a secret or unlawful religious meeting type thing, small, unofficial. And so she's... She's the one who is setting up this idea that the nine of them are working together directly in opposition of the congregation. And that's brought up in book one. And we don't get that proactive conflict. We get maybes. These things may happen in the future. We may have to go against the congregation. Matthew may not be back. You know, it's just not set up as... This is a thing we are consciously going to do. And I wish it was. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I always, I don't know why, but I like the term shadow congregation better than conventicle. So this didn't bother me. But I do like, I guess, the definition of conventicle better. If that makes any sort of sense. Right. It does. Yeah, no, from a word perspective, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I, I think the reason that I like them using the word conventicle is because that one brings about the idea that you're doing something unlawful and it is unlawful what they're doing according to the laws of the congregation for them to gather in that way is unlawful and shadow congregation 
makes it seem like, oh, we're just forming a group to oppose this other group. It, it doesn't seem as dire or as serious. I gotcha. Yeah. And I, I also think in the book, when Sophie said conventicle, there was this sort of moment where everybody sort of looked at her and, and like the word resonated with everyone. Right. And they were like, yes, that's what we are. And it, yeah. it it's a good moment of them being like, right. Yeah. And they could have done that at the dinner scene. Yeah. You know, it would have been really nice to have, because I don't think that's not when Hamish said shadow congregation. He said that when they were talking, when he was talking one-on-one with Matthew. Even if Hamish had been the one to say shadow congregation, but said it in front of all nine people, they could have immediately gotten hushed. And there could have been a moment of somberness that indicated how big this thing is that they're doing. Yeah. And they missed that opportunity, I think. I agree that it could have felt more like we were going into something particular mm-hmm. in the coming season. Yeah. But that being said, this was a pretty spectacular season of television, I think. I enjoyed it. It's hard to talk about a show like this without always wanting to say, but in the book, they did it this way, or in the book, they did it that way. And I, yes. I think we did the best that we could. Well, I think that. you did much better than me, but <laughs> yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, even even though I don't agree with all of the choices that they made for the adaptation, I'm really glad they made it. I really liked it. And I am really excited about season two. I agree wholeheartedly. Like, I've really enjoyed tearing it apart with you. But I only wanted to do that because I loved it so much. Right. Yes. You know? So any criticisms or whatever that we had, they, again, even though some of the scenes I didn't like or I thought they made poor choices, I still overall loved the show and the cast, and it was just so much fun. It was so much fun. So I'm incredibly excited for season two, but I think we're going to save all of our hopes and dreams and speculation for a wrap-up episode that we are going to be recording shortly, Um, and we're going to treat that as sort of a mailbag episode also so if you have any thoughts or questions or anything that we didn't talk about that you want us to talk about please send that in um either uh on twitter uh using the hashtag desire made real or to uh podcast at eloquentgushing.com and we will talk about it then we will have dr anya joining us hopefully for the entirety of that episode so if you have any questions for her they are also welcome and I believe that wraps this up. So um, use, like I just said, hashtag Desire Made Real to join our conversation on Twitter. I'm Caitlin, and you can find my other show, uh, Commander for Own, uh, at a commanderforown.com, or find me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. And I am Mandy Kay, and you can find this show and all of the other Eloquent Gushing shows at eloquentgushing.com. You can find the show on Twitter at Desire Made Real, or you can send an email to desiremaderealpod at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at Mandy K. And we'll be taking the next two weeks off, and our wrap-up episode will be on March 28th. And until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there is a new beginning.